Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. My name is Samantha Naidu, and for this episode, we will be exploring the topic of private regulation. To speak more on this topic, we have Dr. Natasha Tusikov, author of Choke Points, Global Private Regulation on the Internet. She's an expert researcher in the field of regulation and an assistant professor at York University. Okay, so the first question that I have is, what does private regulation of the internet look like? And this is a huge question, and it really depends what you mean by private regulation. Often when we think about private regulation, we think of something that's purely private, just uh, industry actors or, say, non-governmental actors setting and enforcing rules. But uh, what my research really looks at is sometimes the, the private is a little more complex than we might initially think. There might be state actors pushing private actors, coercing private actors to take up certain regulatory responsibilities. Sometimes private actors are very keen to do so, and they appreciate an incentive from the state, say a tax break or some kind of limited liability. And sometimes these private actors, especially the big corporate giants that I look at, like PayPal or Google, are quite reluctant to take up these additional regulatory rules, and states have to coerce them into this. So would you say that coercion or their reluctance to abide by these regulations can lead to repercussions? And if there are negatives, what are the positives to private regulation as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so if we think about the type of private regulation that I talk about, which is the state behind the scenes, kind of from the shadows, pushing or outright coercing companies into doing this regulation, there are quite a few negatives. If the state is acting from the shadows, it usually means the state uh, benefits by some kind of distance from the direct regulatory activity. And this usually means that the state is not pushing for accountability, transparency, public uh, or independent oversight of the regulatory activities. So what we can have is uh, the setting and enforcing rules in ways that's rather opaque to the public, uh, unknown to the public. Uh, the appeal mechanisms might be quite difficult to access. The regulatory mechanisms themselves might not be that, op that open or known to the public. So it could be relatively non-transparent, non-accountable uh, regulation. Now, the positives of this uh, mean that it can be quite rapid quite flexible. So if we're dealing with a problem like hate groups or the online trade and counterfeit uh, goods, private actors can act really quickly. They can take down problematic sales listings or ban actors really quickly. They can act globally wherever their companies operate, and they can be really flexible. They can introduce a rule tomorrow and, uh, and implement that. And so this can be much faster than formal legal orders and obviously much faster than legislation. Okay, so you're talking about a little bit of action on behalf of these private actors. So my next question is, what are some of the methods that in your book, I think you call them macro intermediaries, such as Google or Facebook or MasterCard, what can they use in order to regulate? Or how do they regulate? Yeah, and so states really want to work with the big companies because if you get PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, a couple others on board, you pretty much have the entire payment ecosystem. And what these companies can do is they can take down content. So we're all pretty familiar with that. That's everything from you know hate speech or online child sexual abuse content or sales listings for counterfeit goods. 
But what my research also looks at is the removal of services. So this is where PayPal says, we don't like what you're doing. It violates our terms of service policies. No more payment service for you. And so some people are calling this deplatforming when it comes to social media companies like Twitter or Facebook. Uh, actors like um, Alex Jones are just kicked off uh, social media companies. And it's also called defunding. So uh, for example, the uh, PayPal is withdrawing its services from the hate group, the Proud Boys. And so these uh, groups can no longer fundraise or sell services using PayPal. And would you say this is something that the groups themselves, like PayPal, they decided to do that on their own? Or would you say there's a relationship between the state actors and the private actors that forces them to do this? It's a really complex picture. So um, sometimes these companies do this on their own when there's, say, an outright violation of their terms of service policy, say, when it violates uh, an actual law, right? So as part of their policy, they'll remove a group that's, for example, using fraud, Right. And sometimes uh, the companies act in their own reputational interests. PayPal does not want to be associated with counterfeit goods or with child pornography or with hate groups. So in some cases, they'll look at the the actors involved and say, this is a violation of our services. In other cases, the state is pushing companies to act in certain ways. So. Uh, companies might be pushed by the U.S. government or Canadian government to take a tougher stand on the sale of counterfeit goods than they would normally. They would say, listen, we'll take it down where we get a formal legal order. And the U.S. government might say, well, actually, we want you to be a lot more proactive than that. So I guess more broadly then and kind of more specifically in the Canadian context, what is the relationship between U.S.-based companies and Canadian laws and how does that interaction play out? Yeah, this is a really interesting point because these companies often portray themselves as global companies, right? As if they want global standards, they want global rules. And you can see it from their point of view. It's easier, obviously, if you have global rules in relation to what kind of content is allowed. But we know, especially in the last couple of years, company uh, countries have their own standards, right? We have a Canadian view of what constitutes hate speech that is quite different from the American view. And Canadians rightly want their own cultural context, their own laws reflected in social media companies operating here. So we have had conflicts with U.S. operating companies in Canada that have said, listen, we're American companies. We prefer to abide by American rules. And Canada pushing back, saying, well, you're operating in Canada. You have to abide by Canadian privacy rules. So there is quite a bit of of jostling there. And I think the last couple of years has really brought this to the forefront where countries are saying, listen, if you operate in our domestic framework, we want you to abide by our domestic laws. Even if you say that will lead to more regulation of speech or a more difficult operating environment for you, that's too bad. And have they been compliant in that sense, specifically in Canada or in any other countries that you know of? Uh, and this really varies by country. Uh, certainly Facebook in the past, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada has reported Facebook for violating Canadian uh, privacy rules. So in the past, yes, there have been cases in the United Kingdom, the European Union as well. Uh, Google has been found to violate privacy rules. So Part of this we can trace back to a complex regulatory environment. Part, part of this is the company's ideological framework, right? Silicon Valley, their, uh, their kind of their 
operating principle is move fast and break things, right? Be innovative, bump up against uh, laws. And when you have this as your organizing principle, of course you're going to, of course you're going to come into conflict with laws. And then I guess moving forward then from that, how can the Canadian public be more aware of what their digital rights are? What are our digital rights, and what should we be advocating for within this framework? Yeah, and this is a huge and very important discussion we have to have as Canadians. So some of this comes down to we have to know what we're agreeing to, right? These terms of service agreements that many of us uh, ignore <laughs> when we sign up to uh, Facebook or Tumblr or Instagram or whatever, um, or, or our different smart products. So part of this involves knowing what we're signing up to. But we know and much research shows us we don't really understand what we're signing up for. These terms of service uh, agreements change frequently. We're all signed up to dozens of them. And this means that consumer awareness and digital lit literacy programs alone are not enough. And it's not enough to say to consumers, you have to know better. Really what we need is more government involvement. And this government involvement needs to be in terms of privacy laws. So we have to have a deeper, bigger conversation in Canada about what kinds of data collection should be off limits, right? What kinds of data companies should not be allowed to collect about us? What types of data should not be allowed to be sold or traded or shared with other companies? And this means thinking about data rights, so not just privacy and data protection, but broadly data rights. What do mean we mean by a national data strategy? And so in my research, I've, I've talked about that we should take a human rights approach to data. So not strictly a, an economic approach as what companies should collect, how people can benefit from uh, exchanging their data, but what do we mean by data protection and data as a human right in Canada? That's really interesting. I've never thought of data protection as a, like a, one of the natural human rights before, but do you think it's moving in that direction? Well, we've got some movements, certainly. Uh, we have uh, Brazil with the Marco Seville de Internet uh, mm -hmm. brought in in 2014, which started to conceptualize uh, data protection and privacy and these kinds of things as a human right. We have work in Europe. Um, there's a number of scholars that are looking at data as a human right. And part of this forces us to kind of take it beyond this narrow economic uh, conception, right, where the big actors in this then are companies and us as consumers. And this kind of takes us back and says we're more than consumers. We are, we are humans. We have sets of human rights. And when we talk about data as a human right, we want people to be more involved in this conversation and um, a larger dialogue than simply what we expect as consumers. And I think there's a larger role and a necessary role in the state for this. Instead of a simple exchange between companies and consumers, it's it's for states to help us uh, navigate and to help us establish this framework that's much, much more important in terms of data protection. Okay. And then just as a final question, this is not one that's on the list, but one that I'm just curious about during our conversation, but as a researcher, how do you find that you create impact on policy and on the government and kind of bridging that access and information gap? 
Yeah, and this is something that I think uh, is very important for scholars. Um, personally, I want my research to be policy relevant. So what I try and do is write uh, opinion pieces, write for the conversation, in which I translate my research findings into a short, accessible piece mm -hmm. that has uh, policy-relevant recommendations. I also strongly believe in the value of submitting uh pieces to government, right, in policy recommendations. So when governments ask for ask for uh, submissions from the public to translate my research and to you know, translate some of those findings, some of the controversies, some of the big debates we're having in the literature and in the theory into easily accessible, understandable pieces for government. Because I think it's it's really important that we not just talk to other scholars, but that we make sure we have a dialogue with the public. And this definitely includes public, uh, public policymakers. Thank you. Those were all the questions that I had for today. And thank you, Dr. Tusikov, for agreeing to be a part of the podcast. Your words were incredibly educational and valuable. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to this episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. For more episodes, you can go on to ncgl.humanities.mcmaster.ca. See you next month. Bye.